Now, as I mentioned in the video, Underground Sessions is a space we created to talk about difficult topics. And certainly in the past, we haven't shied away from difficult issues, and I think this one is no different. However, I have to tell you that as I've been preparing for this event, I've personally learned a lot and just been blessed by hearing people's stories and perspectives. And so I hope you join us for what's going to be an exciting and thought-provoking evening. Plus, there's going to be food, and there's going to be the band Full City, so you won't want to miss that. Now, the topic for Underground Sessions also dovetails nicely with our passage in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 today. If you're just joining us this morning, we are in the middle of a series on uh, the book of James. And so uh, James is a very practical book, and today's topic really is no different. It's the topic of discrimination. And so with that in mind, can we pray for God's grace and wisdom before we dive into God's word? Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for those people that are here. Father, for those who you've sovereignly, providentially brought into our midst today. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts to hear what your word has to say today. Ultimately, Lord, we want to be shaped by the gospel, by your word, by your revealed truth, so that we would give you glory and that we would be obedient to you. And so I pray that any words I prepared would fade and that you, Holy Spirit, would come and speak to our hearts and that we would leave this place today desiring to live for you and give you glory. We ask that in the precious and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I suspect I'm not the only one in this room who likes movies. All right, when I was younger, I wanted to be an actor, and I was equally fascinated with the lives of movie stars and their stories. And the best place that I knew to find out about their stories was a little publication known as People Magazine. In fact, my grandmother had a subscription, and she would always pass her subscription along to us once she was done with it. Now, to be clear, I I don't still have a subscription to People Magazine. But uh, interestingly, I recently discovered something about People Magazine that convicted me. In his book, Life, the Movie, cultural critic Neil Gabler claims that People Magazine has become the archetypal magazine of our times. In fact, Gabler writes this. He says, inspired by a section of Time magazine that chronicled celebrity milestones, people expanded the concept to include anything a celebrity did on the canny principle that ordinary people were fascinated with what we perceive to be extraordinary ones. And I have to admit that I'm guilty of that. Within 10 months of its launch on March 4th, 1974, the magazine had a circulation of 1.25 million That's a lot. Now, but here's what's so interesting. Although people made a point of including non-celebrities in its pages, its success was unmistakably a testament to the enchantment of celebrity. In fact, people editor Richard Stolle even devised a set of rules for a successful cover. These were the rules he put out there. Young is better than old. Pretty is better than ugly. Rich is better than poor. TV is better than music. Music is better than movies. Movies are better than sports, except if the Super Bowl is on. Anything is better than politics. And nothing, nothing, nothing is better than a celebrity who just died. It was a bracing description of not only what sold magazines, but of what values the media now sold the country. Now, the reason I said this discovery was convicting for me was because I realized that People Magazine was influencing how I viewed people. It was shaping my mind in a way that assigned values to certain groups of people, and namely beautiful, successful people, and by extension and omission, devalued other people. I mean, my goodness, the editor even himself devised a set of rules as to how to do this. But here's the real problem, I think. 
It's in that last statement, so let me read it again. He wrote this. He says, It was a bracing description of not only what sold magazines, but of what values the media now sold the country and that we bought. And friends, if we are honest, many of us have to admit that we did buy it. I wonder if anyone in this room has ever felt not valued. Has anyone in this room ever been a victim of what might be called favoritism? Maybe you were passed over at your job in favor of someone who was younger than you. Maybe you feel your voice isn't heard because you're viewed as being young and irresponsible. Perhaps people look at you differently because of the color of your skin, the brand of your jeans, the way you talk, or your attractive or unattractive perceived physical features. I suspect many of us have experienced favoritism based on how we look. In fact, a recent survey from Newsweek magazine confirms this to be true in the workplace. The survey that they did concluded in all elements of the workplace, from hiring to politics to promotions, looks matter and they matter hard. The research provided the following results. Number one, it said, favoritism happens. In fact, 57% of hiring managers believe an unattractive but qualified job candidate will have a harder time getting hired. Number two, your looks matter more than your resume. 59% of hiring managers advise spending as much time and money making sure you look attractive as having a good resume. Well, naturally, this is worse for women. 61% of hiring managers and 60% of them were men said that women would benefit from wearing clothes that would show off their figure. We also judge overweight people. Although 75% of Americans are overweight, about 66% of managers said they thought some managers would hesitate from hiring someone who is significantly overweight. We also judge old people. 84% of managers said their bosses would hesitate before hiring a qualified candidate. They said uh, they thought some managers would hesitate from hiring a qualified candidate who looked much older than his or her coworkers. And finally, and probably most convicting, we think favoritism based on looks is okay. 64% of hiring managers said they believe companies should be allowed to hire people based on looks. Wow. Now, friends, can we agree that favoritism is a real thing? And sadly, that the church is not immune to this danger. In fact, maybe you've had the experience where you've felt judged by the way that you dressed or you didn't look the right way. And you know what's worse, that many, many people have felt this way when they've walked into a church. You've walked into some, maybe some of us have walked into some churches, the very place we know should be a place of unparalleled welcoming and felt like an outcast, like something was wrong with us or that we didn't belong. And what James is going to say in our passage today is this, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. The church should be the most welcoming place in the world. And because of the gospel, it doesn't matter how much money you make, what you dress like, how old you are, or what race you come from, because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And that is what James is going to talk about today, favoritism. And so as we look at James 2, 1 to 13, we're going to ask a couple questions. We're going to ask, what is favoritism, to define that? What does favoritism look like? Why is favoritism wrong? And finally, James is going to show us a better way. So let's ask that first question. What is favoritism? You know, last week, Pastor Dave preached on the end of James chapter 1, and we discussed what it means to live according to God's word. 
He said that everything we do at NBC is shaped by God's word. And let me add this week, all of God's word. Sometimes we hear messages like the one that was preached last week and we say, amen, yes. But then we conveniently skip over parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable or don't fit our worldview. At the end of chapter 1, James actually tells us what true religion should look like. He says this in verse 26 and 27. Those who consider themselves religious, followers of Christ, yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, what's the first thing he says here? Be mindful of how we speak to other people. That if you are religious, if you think you know the Bible, but you speak in an unkind manner to people, your religion is worthless, friends. What is true religion? Well, it's caring for the poor and the outcast, which in James's day was the orphans and the widows. What is meaningful to God? What really counts in his eyes? It's looking after the marginalized, he says, who have always been dear to God. We need to make sure that this is a priority in our lives as well. In fact, actually that word in verse 27, which says, look after, actually means advocate. What he's saying here is we're called to advocate for the poor, not just give them a handout. Now, a lot of people dismiss this as being a liberal idea, but that's not what it is. This is what the word of God says. And if we're going to say that we believe the whole word of God, we have to take all of it seriously. It's what we're called to do. You know, often in traditional churches, we tend to hold fast to family values and teach morality in that way. But when it comes to engaging real situations of oppression, we tend to pay lip service. We don't actually do anything. We're like Jerry Seinfeld, who would famously look at people with difficulties and say, eh, that's a shame, and then would walk on by. Now, on the flip side, there's more liberal churches who tend to talk about justice for the oppressed and so on, but then they loosen God's commands as it comes to purity and and being unstained by the world. For example, they just accept people's sexual lifestyles without being judgmental. But I think what James is saying here is that both are off course. They both mix the full picture. James says that the true Christian sees both of these areas as sin, and they hear the word of God and address both. So after painting this picture of true religion, James moves on to this topic of favoritism. And as I mentioned, I imagine many of us have either engaged in this practice or have been victims of it. But we're asking right now, what exactly is it? Why is it such a natural thing for us to do? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 1. This is what James says. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Notice that James is addressing believers here. But even if you're not a Christian here today, you've probably experienced the destructive power of favoritism, and you know how harmful it can be. Other translations will actually say, say here that we should not show prejudice, or we shouldn't have partiality, or we, we, we shouldn't be favored. Engage in favoritism. And favoritism literally means to receive someone according to their face. It describes the essence of judging based on external appearances. In other words, believers should not prefer one person over another based on their appearance, their faces, their clothes, or any other aspect of their outward appearance. Thus, the force of the command that James is giving here is for us to avoid discrimination in the body of believers. 
And since James is saying here that this must not happen, it certainly implies that the activity was happening in James' church, which is why he's addressing it. And so as a result, he's exhorting the brothers and sisters to avoid it because true faith, he's saying here, leaves no room for social distinctions. These are believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, which emphasizes God's presence among them and Christ's lordship over their lives. Now, that word glorious means significance. In other words, Jesus wants to be the most supremely important thing in our lives. And what James is saying in verse 1, and he's about to illustrate in verses 2 to 4, is this. If you treat poor people or people of different classes and races differently than you, if you don't treat every human being as if they have dignity and worth, you don't understand glory. You don't understand what it means to truly follow Jesus. And that's a big wow. Now, you can see why favoritism may initially seem like not a small sin, but it does have destructive and divisive potential. In fact, discrimination has no place in the church, but you may ask, what does favoritism really look like, specifically in the church? Well, James anticipates that, and he goes on to give an example. He specifically applies the principle of favoritism to a rich man and a poor man. Now, there's some debate over these next couple verses as to whether the scene takes place within a worship service or in a Christian courtroom, but regardless, James is pointing out something that should not occur amongst the people of God. This is what he says in verse 2. He says, suppose a man comes in wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. Now, what he's doing here is he's putting forth a hypothetical scenario. He's saying, well, let's just say... Friends, let's, let's play out this scenario. Suppose this happens, even though it probably is happening. A man comes in, and to put it in modern terms, is wearing some super expensive designer jeans, driving a luxury car, who's obviously spent an enormous amount of money on his hair. He enters your church. And at the same time, another man enters who is filthy. I mean, one man is coming in smelling of, of really well-smelling cologne, and the other person smells like they spent a night in a dumpster. And what he's asking here is, how would you respond? Who would you talk to, and who would you leave over in the corner? Or let me put this another way. Let's pretend some celebrity walks into NBC. For the sake of argument, let's just say the celebrity is Tim Tebow. Okay? He's not coming to speak. He just wants to attend a service. And he walks in the door the same time a man wearing ratty clothes, with no teeth, and smells like they haven't showered in a month enters. Who do you think would garner a crowd around them, and who do you think we would, we would assume in our mind we need to keep an eye on and perhaps call the police on? This is the scenario that James is literally playing out here. Now, in James's day, there was a very clear distinction between the wealthy upper class and the poor. In fact, people's attire was a clear sign of which class they belonged to. Additionally, a person wearing these types of clothes would have been seen as flaunting their wealth to a largely poor congregation. And conversely, the Greek word for poor here actually implies that the other person was destitute. Today we have different status symbols, but the principle is the same. And so as you can see, this is where the rubber meets the road. And I think James is using this illustration to make a strong point. It was actually happening. Suppose these two men enter your church today, how would you respond? Well, James continues the scenario in verse 3. He says this, 
He says, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you, you sit on the floor at my feet or literally under my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, you say, hold on a second. When did I become a judge with evil thoughts? But you have to see what James is saying here. He's saying that, that discrimination is seen by where you ask the other person to sit. Where, where do you put them? What seat in our sanctuary will we offer Tim Tebow And which seat will we offer the person we consider the outcast? Our actions show whether we discriminate or not. And if I'm truthful, I do this without even thinking about it. And I suspect many of us do as well. If we see somebody who we view as being important, we we unintentionally overlook the people we think are unimportant. But there's also times where we do this intentionally. If somebody comes in and they smell bad... We might not want to go near them. Favoritism comes very easy for us, and I might even suggest favoritism is the default mode of our heart, that unless the gospel comes in and reshapes it, that's where we automatically go. Now, there's something else I don't want you to miss because James is being very harsh in verse 4. And when he says you become judges with evil thoughts, what he's literally saying is that we are become people who will take bribes. You see, if you privilege one class or one cultural group over another, you are like a judge who will take bribes. And that stings a little bit. Because if we really take an inventory of our lives, and if we look at our hard attitudes and actions, who among us is innocent? We often look down on people based on their appearance and judge them without even being aware. And sometimes we are. You know, there's a famous example of this. In fact, a blog on the Henry Ford website remembers the brave decision made by Rosa Parks in 1955. It's one of the most famous moments in American civil rights history. On a chilly December evening in 1955, on a busy street in the capital of Alabama, a 42-year-old seamstress boarded a segregated bus to return home after a long day of work. Taking a seat in the middle, just behind the front white section, At the next stop, more passengers got on, and when every seat in the white section was taken, the bus driver ordered the black passengers in the middle row to stand so a white man could sit. And Rosa Parks refused. Theologian Michael Horton notes that this extraordinary act flowed out of Rosa Parks' ordinary life of obeying and following Jesus. And this is what he writes. He says, Rosa Parks didn't wake up one day and decide to be the first lady of the civil rights movement. She just boarded a bus, as she did every day for work, and decided this day she was going to sit in the back as a proper, she was not going to sit in the back as a proper black person was expected to do in 1950s Montgomery, Alabama. She knew who she was and what she wanted, and she knew the cost, and she made the decision to pursue what she believed in enough to sacrifice her own security. At that point, she wasn't even joining a movement. She was just the right person at the right place and time. And what made her the right person was countless influences, relationships, and experiences, most of them seemingly seemingly insignificant and forgotten. God had already shaped her into the sort of person who would do such a thing. For For her, at least, it was an ordinary thing to refuse to sit in the back of the bus on this particular trip. But for history, it had radical repercussions. Church... 
Are we willing to give up our seat for people who don't look like us? Will we be a community of compassion and justice or one of favoritism and discrimination? Now, we hear this story today and we cringe, but we have to ask the, the question if we are so different as we interact with people. And it's not the large-scale issues of discrimination that we need to consider here. I mean, we do need to consider that, but on a much smaller, relevant scale, it's the subtle ways we interact with people that become every day become the playground of discrimination. In order to combat that, we need to consider another question. Why is favoritism wrong? Why is favoritism wrong? Because we cannot think that favoritism or discrimination is not a big deal. Or we can't dismiss it as something that happens over there with those people. We have to recognize in our hearts and see it as something close to home. Because we can't just brush it off and think we're going to make any meaningful progress in reaching out. We have to come to the same place the Apostle Peter did when he realized that the gospel had come to the Gentiles. In Acts 10, 34 and 35, Peter exclaimed this. He says, I know, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Because you see, God does not judge us based on the color of our skin, where we live, how much money we make, or what clothes we wear. God looks at our hearts. And we are not called, we don't show favor, favoritism is wrong because God does not show favoritism. And so in the second half of this passage, James offers three very practical reasons why favoritism is wrong and goes against our call as Christians. And the first thing is this, favoritism is wrong because it hurts those who God cares about. It hurts those who God cares about. While this principle can be applied in many, many ways, James specifically applies it to the poor. Because God cares about the poor. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? God has chosen the poor in the eyes of the world. In other words, God deeply cares about the destitute. And so James indicates here that God has actually chosen the poor to be rich in faith. And why do you think that is? Well, it's often true that the poor are more inclined to depend upon God than the rich. I mean, think about it this way. When you're poor, I mean, you know you have a need. It's staring at you in the face every day. You know you need something bigger than you, something outside of you to help you. But the plight of the rich is that in so many ways they have things that distract them from their need for God, which I believe can be so challenging when ministering in wealthy communities. I mean, how do you teach people who seemingly have no needs that they need a savior? How do you teach people who have full bank accounts and full refrigerators and good doctors at their disposal that there is a need? I mean, after all, we've worked really hard to achieve those things, haven't we? Often with those who are rich, we need to dive several layers down. We need to pull back the layers of the onion to get at the need because everybody has a need for a savior. But we have to go deeper. It's not on the surface. And that's applicable when we do ministry in our context because Somerset County, New Jersey is one of the wealthiest counties in the world. To reach people, we need to do a deep dive into the lower regions of the heart. But the poor know their needs. It's staring them at the face every day. And every day, people look at them and think they're an outcast. 
All people are made in the image of God. And when we show favoritism, when we discriminate, we show certain people they don't matter and we dishonor them. And that's the accusation that James brings now in verse 6. He says this. He says, you have dishonored the poor. God says, I've chosen the poor to be rich in faith, but you are, dishonor- you are not honoring them, church. You are treating them like second-class citizens. You're ignoring them. You're looking down upon them. You're mocking of them. You, you speak ill of them, and that is not consistent with the call that God has given us. Now, James is making a very important theological point here, and it's simply this, that all people are made in the image of God. Not all people are Christians, but all are made in the image of God, and we should treat each other as such. In fact, James dives further into this topic in in chapter 3, verse 9, and and here he's talking about taming the tongue, and this is what he says. He says this in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who are made in God's likeness and his image. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Do you see what he's saying? That how we speak about and to other people shows if we care about them. To curse someone is to insult them. And when we speak ill of people who are different than us, we are not caring for them well as fellow image bearers. How we speak about people exposes discriminatory biases. In other words, it shows if we're engaging in favoritism. And to avoid that, We need to know other people and hear their story. Author Scott Sauls describes a time when he was confronted with this head-on in his book, Jesus Outside the Lines. He writes this. He says, One day I was living in New York City, walking down Broadway and minding my own business, when a woman outside a bagel shop asked me if I could buy her uh, something to eat. She was a familiar face in the neighborhood, he said, because she lived outdoors most of the time. She was homeless. Like Jesus, she had no place to lay her head. Now, me, desiring to help her, I offered to buy her a bagel and a coffee. And she responded that, well, coffee would be nice, but she would prefer a container of egg salad instead of a bagel. He says, I smiled, and I said, sure, no problem. But I wasn't smiling on the inside, he writes. He says, because to me, her request was a problem. I was going out of my way to help her, and she was being picky. I mean... Furthermore, part of me thought that she should be grateful for whatever I chose to give her. In fact, a bagel cost 75 cents, but a container of egg salad, that cost $6. I still remember, he writes, my own internal dialogue as I went into the shop to purchase the coffee and egg salad for the woman. Irritated by her request, I cynically fantasized what I might say to her if I was less polite and did not have a filter. I said, maybe, maybe I can get you some caviar with that. And he writes, thank God I wasn't so cold-hearted. Because as I handed the woman her coffee and egg salad, she apologized to me for the egg salad request. She told me that softer foods are the only kinds of foods she's able to eat because to chew on anything, especially a bagel, was excruciatingly painful for her diseased teeth and gums. He says, God have mercy on me for being so callous and critical toward a woman in whose shoes I have never had to walk and whose life I could not begin to understand. Maybe, he says, in that sidewalk conversation, it was I, not the woman, who was truly poor. Because you see, when we discriminate and when we display favoritism, it hurts those who God cares about. 
That story made me step back and think about my own interaction with those who are different than me. Who are the poor in the eyes of the world that you've come in contact with? It could be a homeless person, but it could also be those with special needs, the socially awkward, those of a different ethnic group. May we be mindful to consider what life is like in their shoes, and may we also remember that they are fellow image bearers. So favoritism is wrong because it hurts those who God cares about. But secondly, favoritism is wrong because it is inconsistent with how we are called to use power. Here the conversation shifts from the poor to the rich and powerful. Now in our times, there's many ways to acquire power, and there's also many ways to abuse power. In James's day, power was often in the hands of the very wealthy, who used that power to oppress the poor. This is what James writes in verse 6 and 7. He says, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? What's going on here? Now, while James doesn't explain why the rich are placing charges on the poor, a common motive was to gain more money from land and property disputes. Another possibility was that the rich were collecting debts that the poor owed and the action which would likely have put a lot of poor people in what's called debtor's prison that they they couldn't have gotten out of. Either way, unjust actions were occurring on the part of the rich. Now, what I want to say here is that it's very important to note that James does not condemn the rich for having wealth in this passage. What he is condemning is their unjust actions towards the poor. It does beg the question as to how people become wealthy or poor in James's day, because in the first century there existed something known as zero-sum economics. And what that basically meant was that there was a fixed amount of money in the world, and there wasn't really many opportunities to increase that wealth. So as a result, it really was nothing that we know as the middle class in James' day. You didn't have the opportunity to work hard and make more money. There was no social ladder for you to climb. You were either rich or you were poor, just based on where you were born and what family you were born into. In fact, it was estimated that 8% of the population had wealth. There was a small 2% that maybe could acquire some more, But the other 90% lived in poor and wretched conditions with no way to get out. People who had wealth typically acquired it by owning land. And if you own land, you typically became a landlord who exploited or could exploit the people who used your lands. And so not surprisingly, this became an issue in James's church because both rich landlords and poor people were coming to faith. And so James is bringing a correction here and saying that if you are rich and you're a Christian, money is not your God, Jesus is. Thus, treat others in a way that manifests Jesus being Lord of your life, because even Jesus himself was marginalized. He was one of the poor and the outcasts. He was just the carpenter's son whose family didn't get him, and yet he had all the power in the world. And what did Jesus do with his power? He used it to love and serve others. See, as Christians, as ones who follow in the footsteps of our Lord, we're called to serve, to give up privilege and power for the sake of others, to always be looking to the interests of others, not exploiting them for our own gain. We have to care about those who God cares about. We don't exploit others for the sake of power. But finally, favoritism is wrong because it violates the law and it's unloving. Now James appeals to the commands that God gives in Scripture. He says this in verse 8, If you really kept the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Now you may ask the question, what is this royal law? Well, it is the law of our King, Christ Jesus. 
The royal law is summed up in that statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Did you catch that? We must love our neighbors as ourselves, even the poorest people who can't give anything return because all people are made in the image of God and all people are our neighbors. He says, if you follow this command, you're doing right. And then he contrasts it in verse nine with favoritism. He says, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers for everyone who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Did you hear what he said? He calls favoritism a sin. He says that if you do this, you've broken the law. And not only that, but you're guilty of breaking the whole law. Wow. I mean, that's, that, that's pretty powerful language as it relates to favoritism and discrimination. And I wonder if we hear that, church. If you discriminate against someone, you are guilty of breaking the whole law. And James offers an example, verse 11. He says, for he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. And if you do not commit murder, but do, do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a law breaker. Now, James specifically chooses these two commands as an example. Because murder, murder was frequently associated with discrimination of the poor and failure to love one's neighbor. And so you might not commit adultery, But murder is serious, and he's equating that with mistreatment of the poor. Take notice again of that phrase, show favoritism, because it's the same noun that's used in chapter 2, verse 1. Again, it has the connotation of judging people by external appearances. But then he says the astonishing thing in verse 10, that you, you can keep the entire law, but if you do this one thing, if you discriminate, you've broken all of it. It's astounding. And that phrase, you sin and are convicted, indicates that it's ongoing, willful sin on the part of the believers. That by showing favoritism, not only have they broken the law, but they continue to break the law because they haven't loved their neighbors. Because how do we love God, friends? We follow his commands. And how do we love our neighbor? As ourself. Thus, don't show favoritism. So favoritism is wrong. Okay, I get it. But what do we do about it? Well, we have to recognize that there is a better way. And that's where James is going to take us as he ends here in verses 12 and 13. After going to painstaking lengths to explain the dangers of favoritism, James now concludes the passage with an exhortation to live better. True to fashion, James offers us a call to action. Verse 12, he says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. See, James, again, is very practical here. He's not mushy. He says, you got to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by this law. you got to speak in a way that is in line with the law that gives freedom. You have to act in a way in line with the law that gives freedom. What's this law? Well, this here is the same law James was talking about in chapter 1, verse 25, what he called the law of liberty there. It's a liberating law because the old law could do nothing but condemn us This is the law he's talking about in verses 10 to 11. It can only show us that we failed to obey it, but the law of liberty, the law that brings freedom, refers to the fulfillment of the law by Christ. And because Jesus has fulfilled the law with all its righteous requirements, he has now set us free to live for him. He has saved us, friends. And not not only are we saved, but we are now free to obey and live as we were meant to live as people under his rule. 
And if you don't live in a way that shows that your lives have been changed, you will be judged. We will be judged as people who are not totally free. In other words, we will be judged as a congregation if we don't show mercy. Listen to the final verse, verse 13. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But mercy triumphs over judgment. See, judgment in this context is referring to the future judgment that both believers and unbelievers will experience. While Christians will be judged, our judgment will come before Christ, who has offered us freedom through his grace and mercy. Indeed, mercy is the pardon that believers will receive because of the work of Christ on their behalf. Our reality is this, if you are in Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment for the Christian because our Savior took judgment on the cross for us. And what James is calling us to here is this, if you as a Christian have received this mercy from God, you must be an agent of compassionate mercy in the world. If we, if we do not do this, woe to us. In fact, this verse could literally be translated, for judgment is merciless to the one not showing mercy. Jesus warned us of this in his parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, that if God has shown mercy to us, we must show mercy to others. Commentator Craig Blomberg puts it this way. He says, those who fail to demonstrate a living and consistent faith are in danger of facing harsh judgment at the end, for they live as though ethical issues were of no consequence. In other words, how we live on earth matters. Don't be people who are indifferent to the plights of others, but be merciful people. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. It's a calling, and it's a constant battle. In fact, as he closes this section, James uses this beautiful wordplay, because you see that word triumph, mercy triumphs, actually means boasting. A sense of victory comes. A conquering of something that gives us the ability to boast. It's like, it's like a boxer in a ring. The whole passage has been a boxing match between the sin of favoritism and judgment and us. And here James is saying that we have to fight against favoritism and judgment. Every time we get punched, we need to punch back until we knock out favoritism and judgment. Do we hear that? We are in a battle against sin and mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the better way. If we are to be the people of God, mercy must triumph over judgment. And you know what? It did. Because when Jesus went to the cross, Paul tells us in Colossians 2, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of that. What did he do? He triumphed over them by the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, he triumphed over the powers and the principalities of this world, and he boasted in his victory. He humiliated them because they no longer had power, and their voice of judgment and discrimination was crushed because on the cross, mercy has triumphed. And that's why the gospel changes everything, friends. Where the mercy of Christ reigns, prejudice and discrimination and racism and classism, they go away. Because when we recognize that we are people who have received mercy, we give mercy. When we recognize 
that we deserve to be judged, but that Jesus Christ was judged in our place. We are humbled. And no longer are we evil judges with evil intent, but people of grace. And no matter how much power we think we have in this world, we recognize that we were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And whatever kingdom we think we have in this world, we don't, because we're part of a larger story. We're part of a larger kingdom, God's kingdom. And here's what's most convicting. If we engage in discrimination or prejudice or favoritism, have we ever wondered why it is that we do that? Well, it's really about power. It's about being able to look down on other people and think that we're better than them. That's the heart behind racism and classism and discrimination. But you know what? Jesus taught something that was so countercultural and counterintuitive. Jesus taught us that power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful. I mean, think about that. Because the best leaders, the best rulers, are people who don't hoard power for themselves, but use it for the benefit of others. And Jesus also says that wealth is not primarily for the benefit of the wealthy. Wealth is a stewardship. It's a test based not, based not on how well we do, but how generous we can become. And that's a test of how much we love God. And if we understand, if we get mercy and grace deep down in our hearts, we will be generous people. How can we live lives where mercy triumphs over judgment? How can we let mercy triumph in our own lives, in our churches, and in our world? I pray those are the questions that we ask as we go today. Let me invite the worship team to come back up and close us out with one more song. And as they do, let me come back to People Magazine and our obsession with beautiful people. Do you know why we're obsessed with exceptional people? Do you know why we read People Magazine? Well, let me share with you a quote from my friend Jason Helveston, who is one of our underground session speakers. He puts it this way. He says, look closely enough, and every hero in history reveals imperfections, iniquities, and a deep need to be rescued. There's no reason to discredit their contributions. Rather, it's a reminder to them and us that we ought to long for and are truly desperate for a hero who isn't merely in history, but who is also over history. The closer you look at this hero, the more glory is revealed. And don't you see that the reason we're obsessed is because we have a longing for the only one who is truly beautiful, the only one who is truly glorious, as James said in 2.1, the Lord of glory, because he is the one who, though he was rich, became poor for our sake. He is the one who commands our lives. He is the one who mercifully forgave us on the cross, and he is the one who we are called to emulate. May we follow his example as we avoid judgment, as we seek mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me pray for us.